Well, it is good to see you uh, this morning. Glad you're here. Uh, Our sermon text this morning is in Acts chapter 16. Acts chapter 16, if you're just uh, joining us for the first time here this morning, I've been preaching through the book of Acts. Uh, This book was uh, written by a man named Luke, and he's giving us here historical facts, telling us what happened after Jesus ascended back to heaven. Jesus came, he lived, he died, he rose again, ascended back to heaven, and Luke is then telling us what happened next as the news about Jesus began to spread around the world. Uh, We are in Acts chapter 16, we'll be reading verses 6 through 15 in just a couple of minutes here. Let's pray as we get going. Well, Father, we would just step into that psalm that we just sang, and we would say, Lord God, please now send forth your light and your truth, and let them lead us to your holy hill and to your dwelling. We would just cry out to you, Father, uh, for mercy, that you would send that light, that you would send that truth by the power of the Holy Spirit. Father, we know that according to the natural mind, what we are going to do now is foolishness. Your your Bible talks about the foolishness of preaching to those who are lost. And yet it is through this foolishness of preaching your word that you have ordained to save those who believe in Christ. So Father, as we open your word now... As I preach, I would just ask for the blessing of your Holy Spirit, that in and through the foolishness of preaching, you would declare your wisdom, and you would save those who trust in Christ. And we thank you for it, Lord. In the name of Jesus, amen. Well, at this point in the book of Acts, the Apostle Paul has just started his second missionary journey. Paul will actually take three missionary trips here in the book of Acts, traveling to new areas and telling people about Christ. And right now, Paul here on his second missionary journey, he's traveling with several men. Paul is, he started out on this trip with a man named Silas. And then on the trip, they recently picked up this young man named Timothy. And as I will explain in a few minutes here, they will now pick up uh, another very important man. And this text that we're going to read right here, something very significant takes place here in these verses. A very important event in human history. For the first time ever... Here in these verses, the gospel news about Jesus Christ reaches the continent of Europe. Now, it wasn't called Europe back then, but that is where these men men end up here. I don't think Paul originally planned here to go to Europe. He wants to go to Asia, as we'll see here in just a second, but God will not let him, and he ends up in Europe. A man who preached before Charles Spurgeon, G. Campbell Morgan, he said this, he said, this invasion of Europe was not in the mind of Paul. But it was evidently in the mind of the Spirit. And as we look at this here now, we we see here now in Europe, 
just one woman turning to Christ in faith. And through this one woman, Christianity has now established a beachhead, an outpost on European soil. Amazing when you stop and think about it. Europe, this continent that would now eventually really become the first Christianized continent. This continent that that will eventually become really the primary base for global missions to the rest of the world. This continent, Europe, that will one day produce the likes of Luther and Calvin and Knox and Zwingli and others. And all of that starts right here. Acts chapter 16 with one woman. Let's go ahead and read it. Acts 16, starting in verse 6. And they, this missionary team... They went through the region of Phrygia and Galatia, having been forbidden by the Holy Spirit to speak the word in Asia. And when they had come up to Mysia, they attempted to go into Bithynia, but the Spirit of Jesus did not allow them. So, passing by Mysia, they went down to Troas. And a vision appeared to Paul in the middle in the night. A man of Macedonia was standing there urging him and saying, Come over to Macedonia and help us. And when Paul had seen the vision, immediately we sought to go into Macedonia, concluding that God had called us to preach the gospel to them. So, setting sail from Troas, we made a direct voyage to Samothrace, and the following day to Neapolis, and from there to Philippi, which is a leading city of the district of Macedonia, and a Roman colony. We remained in this city some days, and on the Sabbath day, we went outside the gate to the riverside where we supposed there was a place of prayer. And we sat down and spoke to the women who had come together. One who heard us was a woman named Lydia from the city of Thyatira, a seller of purple goods, who was a worshiper of God. The Lord opened her heart to pay attention to what was said by Paul. And after she was baptized and her household as well, she urged us saying, if you have judged me to be faithful to the Lord, come to my house and stay. And she prevailed upon us. So the gospel has now penetrated Europe. And you know, when you step back and look at all of that just took place in that text right there, we see something here very, very clearly. We see here the divine sovereign hand of God. Uh, We see God here all through this text sovereignly working, orchestrating, governing all of the events in this text. We, I think you, you look at this, we, we can really see the sovereign hand of God here working in two primary ways. The two points today, here they are up on the screen. What do we see here in this text? We see a sovereign guidance and a sovereign conversion. And the first thing we see here is this sovereign guidance. God very sovereignly guiding this group of men now to just the right place at just the right time. I want to show you where these men have gone so far on this trip. Here's a map. At the end of chapter 15, 
Paul and Silas, they left Antioch in Syria, down in the lower right corner, and then visited some churches that Paul and Barnabas had started earlier in Acts. They visited churches in Derbe and Lystra, Iconium, all the way up into Antioch in Pisidia. And they now, here in this passage, they are trying to go southwest, deep into Asia there. Uh, There was a major Roman military road at the time called the Via Sebast. It traveled southwest from Antioch and Pisidia some 300 miles, or it looks more west, some 300 miles over to Ephesus on the coast. That was probably where Paul was trying to go here. But if you will look at verse 6 again, Luke writes this, he says, and they went through the region of Phrygia and Galatia, which was passing over Asia, having been forbidden by the Holy Spirit to speak the word in Asia. Pause for a second, because that is a crazy statement when you first read it. You would think that the Holy Spirit would want Christ, the news about Christ, to be preached everywhere at all times. And yet, this team of men has now been forbidden, hindered, prohibited by the Holy Spirit, Luke said. Prohibited by God himself from speaking the word in Asia. Not the right place, not the right time for these men. And so here's the map again, with that route blocked, going deeper into Asia, going south there or southwest, verse 7 says that they now went north up to Mysia, and they then attempted to go further north up into Bithynia. And the Greek indicates that they attempted it repeatedly, (laughs) repeatedly, making every effort, trying over and over again multiple times to get into Bithynia. But look now at the middle of verse 7. But the Spirit of Jesus did not allow them. So, once again, the Holy Spirit, the Spirit of Jesus himself, Luke says, does not allow this team of men to enter that area to the north. Not the right place, not the right time for these men. And so, here's the map, one final time. They now go really the only direction that they can go here. They continue kind of to the west or northwest really up to Troas. Traveling on foot most likely some 400 miles passing over all of Asia from Antioch and Pisidia to Troas. And you look at what's happened here, this, this, this team of men has essentially now been funneled by God toward Europe. And how did God do it? How, how did God direct them here? By closing doors. The Spirit sovereignly stopping these men from these other places. Now just pause for a second, easy to read right over that. What did that look like? 
I mean, how exactly did the Holy Spirit stop them from going into these areas? Now, we don't know. We can conjecture. Maybe it was just some internal leading by the Holy Spirit. It was this internal check in their spirits. There was no peace when they thought about going into these areas, which is a way the Lord leads His people at times. Or maybe it was just this internal tug pulling them to the northwest to Troas. Or maybe it was a prophetic word. Acts 15.32 says that Silas was a prophet, and Silas might have received a prophetic revelation. You know, we've seen all the way through Acts, the Holy Spirit speaking to people. And one of the ways the Spirit speaks is through prophetic words. Speaking to Philip with the Ethiopian, go there. Speaking to Ananias with Paul, go there, Paul. Pray for Ananias. Or pray for, pray for Paul. And the Spirit might have spoken here through a prophetic word or some other way, go west or northwest to Troas. Or do, do you think it might have been just a little bit more natural looking? What happened here? The, the Spirit not stopping them in, in a way that looks supernatural, but just stopping this team with some very providential roadblocks. Maybe there was just violent opposition in those areas. They could not go there. Or they, or they, 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 they didn't have the right paperwork. Silas forgot his passport. The prophet forgetting his passport. Go figure. Or the weather. The road's just a mess into those areas. We don't know how this happened, but please notice how Luke interprets this. Who was the one who ultimately blocked these men from going into these areas to preach the gospel? It was God. Sovereignly closing doors to the gospel. At this time in these areas. I do want you to notice too. That Luke does not just blame the devil here. Many Christians are very prone to just blame the devil for everything that's difficult. Satan closed the doors here. Now now listen. Can Satan close doors at times to block the spread of the gospel? Absolutely. Satan hates the gospel, does not want people to hear about Christ. Satan might have been at work here to to block the gospel, stirring up violence or something to block it. But please hear this. Satan is not sovereign. God is. Even Satan is ultimately under God's sovereign control. Satan cannot do just anything he wants to do. No, Satan does nothing that God does not first ordain. That God does not first permit to happen. You can just look at Job in the Bible. It's actually a little bit comical if you think of it. Satan had to go and ask God for permission to tempt Job. And God allowed it in that case, but only to a certain degree. Martin Luther once said that the devil, the devil is God's devil. God has him on a chain like a dog, can only do what God permits to accomplish God's plan. Here's a quote from Martin Luther. 
God uses the devil and the evil angels. They, of course, desire to ruin everything, but God blocks them unless a well-earned scourging is in order and God then allows pestilence, war, or some other plague to come that we might learn to humble ourselves before God and fear God and hold to God and call upon God. And when God has accomplished these purposes through the scourge, then the good angels come again to perform their office. They bid the devil stop the pestilence, war, and famine. So the devil serves us with the very thing which he plans with which he plans to injure us for God is such a great master that he is able to turn even the wickedness of the devil into good so even if it was satan here who blocked these men well god was ultimately over that you can find that in the story of job who was it who tested who tempted job it was satan But Job Job turned to the Lord and said, Blessed be the name of the Lord. The Lord has given. The Lord has taken away. Job did not give Satan credit for being sovereign in this world. God is sovereign even over Satan. So even if Satan was here blocking these men, well, God was ultimately over that. But listen, however this has happened here for these men, up to this point in time, it has been nothing but closed doors for them, sovereignly closed by God. What do you think they were thinking? They couldn't get down into Asia. They couldn't get north to Bithynia. They're traveling 400 miles to a place they didn't plan to go. But now, now that they're finally over in Troas, well, God finally now opens a door. If you look at verse 9, and a vision appeared to Paul in the night there in Troas. A man of Macedonia was standing there urging him and saying, come over to Macedonia and help us. And you know, God, all through this book of Acts, He has been, he's been directing His people through visions. Something that God had promised He would do back in Acts chapter 2. God said back in Acts 2 that in these last days, this age of the Spirit in which we now live, well, God's people would now see visions. And it's happened all through the book of Acts. We hear of visions even today. We hear visions in the Islamic world. Unbelieving Muslims converted to Christianity because in their dreams they saw a vision of Jesus Christ coming to them. And then Paul now sees a vision at night. A man from Macedonia standing in his room. Urging, Luke says. Begging, pleading, Come and help us. You know, there's maybe nothing in this world as powerful as an urgent cry for help. And, and you parents know how that goes. You, you're sleeping at night. You're so tired. There's nothing that could possibly awake you. Not even the end of the world. And then from your little child's room, you hear that cry. Mommy, Daddy, help. And you are in that room in two seconds flat. And your heart is racing. And then you learn that your little child just lost her pillow pet. And that pillow pet has now given you a heart attack. 
And, and Paul, in this vision, he, he, he sees and he hears this urgent cry for help. Come and help us. Come and help us. And he wakes up in the morning, tells the other men, and verse 10 says they, they conclude, they probably deliberated, is this really from the Lord? Did Paul eat some bad pizza last night? Uh, we think it's from the Lord. And they, they knew God was calling them further west to Macedonia. So first, all these closed doors from the Holy Spirit. But finally now, this one open door from the Spirit, A.T. Pearson he looked at this text, text and he talked about a double guidance that the Spirit occasionally gives to God's people. He says this. He says, on one hand, we see here, he's talking about this text, we see here prohibition and restraint. Then on the other hand, we see permission and constraint directing them. They are forbidden in one direction, invited in another. One way, the Spirit says, go not. The other, He calls, come. And and it's amazing when you think about it, that this type of, of double guidance from the Holy Spirit through both closed and open doors. And you know, we've seen that type of stuff all through Christian history. David Livingston tried to go to China, but God closed that door. And opened a door in Africa. William Carey tried to go to Polynesia. But God closed that door. And opened one in India. Adoniram Judson. He went to India. But God then closed that door. And opened one in Burma. And and please, please hear this. God still sovereignly guides His people today. in, In a similar manner. Listen, if you now trust in Christ. He is your Savior. You are seeking to follow Christ in faith. Then the Bible says Jesus is your shepherd, your good shepherd. Jesus is now leading you. Jesus is now sovereignly guiding you in your life. And at times, Jesus will guide you through both closed and open doors. Doors may close for you at some point. You're forced to move. For some reason, you, 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 a job maybe comes to an end. You're let go for some reason, or maybe just some dream that you had for your future is, is no longer possible. The, the man you wanted to marry, he doesn't want to marry you. The school you wanted your kids to attend, well, that school just shut down. The retirement that you imagined in your future, it's now wiped away somehow. Or maybe it's your, your life group attempting to do mission with a certain group of unbelieving people or in a certain area. Or maybe you are on the mission field or you're preparing to go to the mission field overseas and there's just nothing but closed doors. Every door seems to be shut. And listen, it is okay to pound on those doors. It's okay to do that, to pray, to ask God to open closed doors. Paul in the Bible, he prayed multiple times that God would open closed doors for him in the gospel. But listen, if, if those doors don't open, at some point, you, you have to trust in the sovereign hand of God over all things, trusting that Jesus, your shepherd, is guiding you through restraint. 
stopping you. Many Christians just blame Satan. The devil's closing the door. The devil took my job. The devil took my house. The devil stole that future spouse from me. The devil stole my retirement, glorifying the devil. And the devil is not sovereign. God is even over the devil. The devil, as Luther said, is God's devil. And we need to trust that God is in control, even over Satan. And listen, when those doors close, we need to learn to give thanks. A.T. Pearson said this, We need to trust God for guidance and rejoice equally in His restraints and His constraints. God can sovereignly close doors, but God can also then sovereignly open doors for you in entirely new directions. A new job you'd never considered, maybe. A new home in in a brand new area. A new spouse you'd never considered. A new dream for your future you, you never envisioned. A new mission field that you never imagined. Tim and Maria Stadahar, a couple of our members, they were on the mission field in one country, reaching out to a certain people group, but that door closed. Persecution, which just led Tim and Maria to a different open door in a brand new country, reaching out to that exact same people group. Or Will and Sarah Myron, seeking now to enter Ireland to plant churches and their visa's been denied. They can't yet get in. And we will pray that God will open that door. We believe that God will open that door. I would ask you to pray that God, as Paul would say, would open a door in Ireland for Will and Sarah to proclaim the gospel. But if God doesn't open that door ever, We must trust and we must give thanks for that closed door and wait for God to open a door. The sovereign hand of God guiding through both closed and open doors. And may God help us to give thanks for both. A hymn by Joseph Gilmore, older hymn, says this, He leadeth me, O blessed thought, O words, with heavenly comfort fraught. Whate'er I do, where I be, still tis God's hand that leadeth me. If you trust in Christ, He is leading you, guiding you through all things. Now, good and seemingly bad circumstances. Your Savior is leading you. It's the first thing we see here, this sovereign guidance from God and A second thing we see here then, point two, is a sovereign conversion. This team here now heads further west. I'll show you the map one final time. Verse 11 says, they now set sail from Troas, and they sailed uh, to Samothrace, a little island not on the map, and then sailed to the port city of Neapolis, which was on the very edge of Macedonia. You can see just right up there in that pink area. 
And you don't see it from the map when you look at the back of your Bible and look at this map. They just landed on European soil. That is Neapolis. In, Neapolis is the modern-day city of Kavala in northern Greece. Here's a recent photo of Kavala or Neapolis. That's where this team has now landed. Somewhere around there now in Europe. Didn't look quite like that. I bet they wish it did. Uh, but they're there. And something to notice here in this text, Luke, who, who wrote this book, you know, all the way till now, whenever Luke has talked about people in Acts, he's always used he, she, and they. <laughs> For you, uh, you English geeks, that's the third person singular or plural. He, she, they. Luke uses it all the way through this book of Acts. But right here in this text, Luke now changes. And I want you to look at verse 11. So setting sail from Troas, we made a direct voyage to Samothrace and so on. Switching now to we, for you English geeks, first person plural, indicating most likely that Luke himself has now joined this team. Luke traveling now with the Apostle Paul. And verse 12 says that from this port city of Neapolis, they now traveled 10 miles or so inland to Philippi, which many scholars believe was Luke's home city. One of the reasons maybe why Luke has joined this trip here. He's, he's going back home. Philippi, as Luke says, now Luke, if, he, if it is his home city, now he's describing his, home, his own city. And in verse 12, he said it was a leading city in Macedonia. It sounds like someone proud of their city, right? I was born in Wichita, and that was a leading city of Kansas. Uh, so it's his leading city, but it was. It was an important city in this Macedonian area. And it was also, as Luke says, a Roman colony. And listen, that was a big deal for a city back then to be declared a Roman colony. When a, a city was declared a Roman colony, there weren't very many, but Roman soldiers were then encur encouraged to retire in that city. Uh, the citizens were exempt from Roman taxes. They received the best of the empire's protection. So this is a very Roman city here in Philippi, a very strong city protected by the Romans. And these men, this little missionary team, they are now in Philippi and they now meet a small group of women. If you look at verse 13, and on the Sabbath day, we, Luke says, went outside the gate to the riverside where we supposed there was a place of prayer and we sat down and spoke to the women who had come together. Pause on that for a second. If you know anything about Luke, that's strange. Because if you've been following through the book of Luke, or the, or the book of Acts here, every time Paul gets to a new city on the Sabbath day, what does he do? Well, he goes to the synagogue, the Jewish synagogue. He doesn't here. He goes outside the city to this river. 
indicating most likely that there was no Jewish synagogue in Philippi. According to Jewish tradition back then, in order for a Jewish synagogue to be formed in a city, you had to have at least 10 Jewish men, heads of households, then you could have a synagogue. And if there weren't enough Jewish men to kind of help start a synagogue there, then the Jews in the city were supposed to meet under the open sky near some body of water, like a river or an ocean, which is probably what was happening here. Not enough Jews in Philippi for a synagogue, so Paul and his men, they now head to the river, probably looking for Jews, supposing, verse 13 says, that they'd find a place of prayer there, a little handful of Jews. And they do find some women there, probably connected to Judaism somehow. Look at verse 14. Sorry, let me back up. They find these women, and, and Luke, says, Luke says in the verse above that, that Paul began to speak to them. They began to speak to these women. And now Luke begins to focus on just one woman there. If you look at verse 14, one who heard us was a woman named Lydia from the city of Thyatira, a seller of purple goods who was a worshiper of God. So this woman, Lydia, from Thyatira, it's actually a little bit comical, Thyatira was back in Asia. So Paul just tried to get into Asia to preach to people and God wouldn't let him. Sends him to Europe where who does he meet a woman from Asia who, who has now moved to, to Europe, living there now. And she, Luke says, is a seller of purple goods. Uh, you're not purple crayons. Uh, Thyatira, her home city, was known for its dyeing of fabrics and of textiles. And purple dye was the most expensive of all of the dyes back then. Purple was the color of kings. You had to get the purple dye out of shellfish. Very hard to get. Very expensive. So Lydia has probably moved to this Roman colony city to sell her purple goods to the wealthy clientele there, which probably means that Lydia was fairly prosperous. And verse 14 says she was a worshiper of God. And the Greek there, that's, that, that's just a kind of a technical term for what was referred to as a God-fearer. So a God-fearer was, was somebody who was a Gentile, a non-Jew, but they had adopted some Jewish customs. They would go to Jewish services. They would try to worship the Jewish God, but they weren't fully converted to Judaism. And that was Lydia. She was still probably a Gentile, but a God-fearer, hanging around Jewish women down by the riverside, and she's there now with these women listening as Paul speaks about Christ. And man, you look at what happens now here. You just see the sovereign hand of God moving again. Powerfully now in Lydia. If you look at the end of verse 14. The Lord opened Lydia's heart to pay attention to what was said by Paul. The Greek there could be translated as the Lord opened her heart to 
hold to or to turn to or respond to Paul's words. And, and Lydia now instantly receives Christ in faith, begins to follow Christ in faith. And we know that because verse 15 says she was then baptized. And she invited these men over now to her house, these Christian men, to stay at her house. John Stott says that once your heart is opened by Christ, well, your home is then opened to those who follow Christ. And, and she does. And, and listen, Lydia's home, because she was probably wealthy, was probably a pretty large home. And Lydia's home will now become the meeting place for a brand new church in Philippi. A church that Paul will one day write the book of Philippians to in your Bible. And Lydia there, she is now the first Christian convert that we know of in the continent of Europe. A continent that will one day be used powerfully by God and it started right here with just this one woman. But I do want you to pause and I want you to notice again how Lydia's conversion happened. Because Luke's words are very important. Don't rush past them. Lydia, picture her standing on this, this riverside, these, these other women outside of Philippi in the, the middle of this makeshift sermon by Paul as he's, he's, he's sharing about Christ. And what does Luke say? Verse 14, the Lord opened Lydia's heart to pay attention, to, to hold to, to turn to, to respond to what Paul said. And another way to say that, in that moment, at the riverside, right then, God opened Lydia's spiritual ears so she could truly hear Christ. God opened her spiritual eyes so she could truly see Christ. God opened her spiritual mind so she could truly know Christ. God opened Lydia's heart so that she could truly trust Christ and be saved. And please hear this. The clear implication there from Luke is that if God had not opened Lydia's heart while Paul was preaching, none of those things would have happened and Lydia would not have been saved. In order for Lydia to trust in Christ and become a follower of Christ. In order for Lydia that day to be saved, God had to open her heart so that she might truly pay attention, comprehend, cling to Christ. And what do we see there? That is just a very sovereign conversion. That is God from start to finish. Lydia did not save herself. God saved Lydia. You just think of what's happened in this text. God sovereignly guiding this team through both closed and open doors some 400 miles west, leading them, directing them to that particular riverside on that particular day. And when Paul spoke, God then sovereignly opening Lydia's heart so she might truly see and hear and know and trust in Christ. And, and listen, that right there, that is the way that every single conversion to Christ on this planet works. That is how salvation 
works. God sovereignly guides people to you. You are the lost sheep, according to the Bible. Lost sheep do not go out and find the shepherd. No, God sovereignly guides people to you to share Christ with you. Or God might sovereignly guide you to go somewhere where you'll hear about Christ. You just happen to turn on the radio some morning maybe. That was one of my professors in seminary. Lost as could be, did not know anything about Christ. Flipped on the radio and heard Philip Barnhouse preaching on the book of Mark. Or you, 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 you just happen to find a Bible in a hotel room and, and you read about Christ. Or you just happen to be born into a family where people talked about Christ. Or you just happened to walk in this room this morning where people sing about and pray about and preach about Christ. And you hear the words then with your natural ears. You, you hear it with, with your ears. You, you hear then that Jesus is God in human flesh. You hear that Jesus came to earth to take the punishment for our sin on the cross. He rose again, conquering death. And if you now turn from your sin and repentance and trust in Christ and follow Christ in faith, well, God will forgive you. You'll live forever as God's child in heaven. You hear the words with your physical ears. But there must be something else. There must be something else. God, in that moment, must open your heart. Open your ears, open your eyes, open your mind so that you can truly hear and see and know Christ. God must do a sovereign work in your heart or that gospel will not sink into your soul. And why must God open your heart? Because in your natural born sinful condition, you're spiritually dead, the Bible says. Ephesians chapter 2. You have a heart of stone, the Bible says. Ezekiel 36. And please listen, you, you know, you can go up to, to a, a dead person with a heart of stone and tell them 10,000 times to trust in Christ, and they will not do it. You try it next time you're at a funeral, okay? Don't be irreverent, just sneak up to the casket when nobody's looking, look at the dead person and say, trust in Christ. A spiritually dead person, heart of stone, cannot trust in Christ, will not trust in Christ. In order for any of us in that condition to truly see and hear and know and truly receive and respond to Christ in faith, God must open that human heart. God must remove the heart of stone and give a heart of flesh so that the gospel might penetrate. You know, Christians for hundreds of years, they've talked, about, they've talked about how we're saved through both an external and an internal call of God. In, in order to come to Christ in faith, in order for anyone to be saved, there has to be the external call of God. A person has to hear this external call of God. Just has to hear about Christ in some way, from a preacher, or on the radio, or reading the Bible. But God must also then give a very powerful 
powerful internal call. Opening the deaf ears and blind eyes, enlightening the darkened mind, open the person's heart so that they might truly see Christ and embrace Christ by faith. And it goes together, the external and internal call of God, as the preacher preaches like this right here. Or as you listen to the radio and you hear the Gospel of Mark being preached. Or as you find the Bible in the hotel room and and you read it, you're hearing this external call of God telling you about Christ, telling you to come to Christ. Well, you then suddenly receive deep in your heart this very powerful internal call of God calling you personally to trust in Christ. God working through the external call of a preacher, giving you a very powerful internal call, opening your heart to receive what you hear. Lydia, I'm calling you. Come to Christ now. And you hear it for the first time in your life. And you come in faith. John Wesley founded the Methodist Church. He preached everywhere for Christ and and Wesley in his personal journal he described his own conversion like this he said in the evening I went very unwillingly he didn't want to go (laughs) to this church meeting he went to a meeting on Aldersgate Street where one was reading Martin Luther's preface to a commentary Luther had written on Romans and Wesley says this about a quarter before nine While he was describing the change which God works in the heart through faith in Christ, I felt my heart strangely warmed. I felt I did trust in Christ. Christ alone for salvation. And an assurance was given me that He had taken away my sins, even mine. He heard the external call of God. Heard about Christ in Luther's commentary on Romans But God then working in and through that external call gave Wesley this very powerful and very personal call. John, I'm calling you. And what happens when God calls you like that? You come. Like Jesus calling Lazarus out of the tomb. Lazarus come forth and he came. And I wonder, just in closing here, as we've talked about Christ this morning, if God might be calling you today, you may have heard the words about Christ so many times in your life. You're so bored and you've never really come to Christ in faith, but you, you sense that there's something different this morning. Your heart strangely warmed. this silent whisper in your soul, very personal, very powerful, Lydia, Mike, Mary, calling you, come to Christ now. Or listen, if you've already come to Christ in faith, years ago maybe, do you realize there's tremendous encouragement here for you? Tremendous encouragement. Maybe you started following Christ years ago. Or you're a child here, you just turned to Christ recently. Even a few weeks back, you now have a simple childlike faith in Jesus. This should encourage you today because here's the thing. You would not trust in Christ today unless God had opened your heart. 
You would not, you could not do that unless God had opened your ears, your eyes, your mind, given you that powerful internal call so that you would trust in Christ. You didn't save yourself. God saved you. It's the sovereign hand of God. So if you do truly trust in Christ, you'd be encouraged today because your faith in Christ, if it's a true and genuine faith, it's proof that God has opened your heart, that God has saved you. And if God did that for you, when you were at your worst, a lost sinner, then now that you're God's child, he will never, ever, ever cast you out. Do you realize this text, it can also give you hope for an unbelieving family member or friend you might have? You have an unbelieving friend or family member you've prayed for years and you've lost all hope that they will ever be saved. And this text says God is able. He is sovereign. And the sovereign hand of God can save anybody. Pray and trust that at some point God will open that heart. And wherever you're at, I just pray God will help you to trust in him today because he's good and he's sovereign. He's sovereign in guidance. He's sovereign in conversion. May God help you to trust him today in Christ. Father, we do thank you. Bless you for your word, for the truth of your word. Father, these things smack against our natural minds. We want to believe that we are in charge of our entire destiny, that we go wherever we want to go, that if we want to come to Christ, we will. And these say that you are sovereign and not us, that you guide and that you lead, Lord, and that you save. And so we just stand before you and say, thank you, Lord. Father, humble us with this and help us just to trust that you are good, that you are kind, that you are loving, and that you are fully in control, even when things don't look like it. We thank you. In Jesus' name, amen.